0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground.
1: We'll get started with our meditation in just a moment, but just uh, a reminder that so much of what we're learning in practice is about what gets in the way of present moment awareness. And actually that's a more useful, that question is more useful than some kind of thought, oh, I should be present. Why can't I be aware of the present moment? How come my mind's so distracted? Because when the mind has that question, well, what's in the way of being present? Like right now, what's actually in the way of the mind knowing That it's like this now mindfulness doesn't really care what's being known right it isn't about the practice we're doing here it isn't about you or me having a particular experience it's about being aware that it's like this right now right so what's in the way of that and you know an answer it's not we have to discover it in our own mind but the answer is I forgot it's like we forget to be interested in the simplicity of this experience of the body and the mind. It's like this now. It's being known. It's, it's really forgetfulness. Some of you might have heard of Thich Nhat Hanh, one of the more well-known teachers over the last number of decades. He got kicked out of Vietnam in... Uh, I think 1968 went to Paris for the peace talks. Some of you might remember those talks that took place or 69, whatever it was. And then never got let back into Vietnam because the Americans didn't like him. The South Vietnamese and the North, nobody wanted him because he was a peace activist. And, uh, so good for us in the West because he taught then in the West from the mid or from the late 60s. Until just recently, close to death, he went back to Vietnam, really wanted to die in Vietnam, where he was born. So he's there, not really teaching. He's he's had a bad stroke a couple years ago, so he doesn't really talk anymore. But he had this great line. He's quite well known here in the West as a Buddhist meditation teacher, where he said, very simple, simply said in practice, in, in terms of our awakening practice, our Buddhist awareness practice, He said, the only real enemy is forgetfulness. So we don't have too many, you know, Buddhism isn't into this good versus evil sort of frame, except there's one evildoer, right? And that's forgetfulness. When we're forgetful, then it just makes sense because of habit to live in a superficial way, in a distracted way, always doing what we've done before, always having the same results we've had before basically just repeating patterns based on our habits and a lot of our habits as you probably are starting to recognize are very they're not necessarily terrible our habits but they're not leading to greater skill more kindness more wisdom in life so that's what we're remembering to be present and the enemy is forgetfulness and the real, like week four, we really get interested. Well, what's in the way? And I'll just one more thing before we do our sit tonight. Um, one of my early teachers, Ajahn Amaro, he's a British person, um, a Buddhist monk, and now he is the abbot of a quite substantial monastery in England, Amaravati. They have a really great website. And uh, anyway, he has a very simple instruction. And you could just repeat this for yourself at the beginning of a sit in the morning. Okay. Let the body find its natural ease. You could just do it now as we're sitting. Like, can our bodies find its, their natural ease? Allow the mind, allow the heart to find its natural ease. First two instructions, right? And you're gonna, You know, obviously we'll have to remember this many, many times, even during the 30-minute set. Oh yeah, body, please find your natural ease. Do your best. Okay, heart, mind, please find your natural ease. Just do your best. And then the last, the third instruction is, now just stay really interested, really alert to whatever arises to disturb the natural ease of the body and the mind. Because that's where a lot of learning, a lot of insight happens. We see or learn about the nature of our mind, what we haven't seen or learned before. By first trusting that the body can find some natural ease, it won't be perfect, and the mind, the heart can find some natural ease, it won't be perfect, but we're orienting toward being relaxed, being tranquil, being easeful, and very interested, very curious about what disturbs. Whatever ease we've settled into in the body and the mind, what arises to disturb that? Let's settle in, get ready for our sit now, make any final adjustments, appreciating how useful it is to hold the body still, but in a relaxed way, not a forced way. And whenever the sensations in the body are overwhelming and you can't just be with the unpleasantness, then make a very quiet adjustment, including it's also okay to quietly stand up if you need that to relieve the discomfort. Stand for several minutes in a meditative way, continuing your practice. And when you feel ready, just very quietly coming back to a sitting posture. Some people take a couple of longer, deeper breaths in and out to begin their sit. Where you're taking all the time in the world to fill and then empty the lungs. As I've mentioned before, it can be a nice ritual at the beginning of a sitting period. Like switching gears from rushing and the intensity we often live with in our daily lives So just a more relaxed and easeful way of being in the moment. So let's do that one more time at your own pace. Filling and emptying the lungs in an easeful way. And eventually just allow the breathing to continue on its own. Don't start any formal meditation technique. Allow the eyes to gently close, but it's also okay to practice with the eyes open, soft, gazing down toward the floor in front of you. Whatever feels more natural or helpful. So before doing any meditative technique, just recognizing that this experience of the body and mind is being known. And let's take a few seconds and go through the different sense gates. So we'll begin with hearing. Take a few seconds. And just realizing that hearing is being known. We don't need to figure out what's being heard, but just in a general way, knowing that hearing is being known. Or you could say, resting in the hearing. And it's good to recognize that hearing is effortless. You don't have to try to hear. Hearing is just happening. Seeing is also happening even if the eyes are closed. There's some visual experience here and now being known. So just sense that activity of seeing. Seeing is being known. Hearing is being known. Seeing is being known. And feeling the sensations of the body sitting the breathing body, that whole ocean of sensation coming and going. This is also being known, touch or sensation, being known here and now, just as it is. And of course, to a lesser degree, smelling and tasting the last two physical senses also being known, probably not that predominant right now, but even in the subtle or non-predominant way, still smelling and tasting, the neutrality probably of smelling and tasting can be known here and now. So, all five physical senses being known, just tuning into the natural sensitivity of the body to hear, to see, to touch, to smell and taste. And of course, the mind is also sensitive to mental activity, thoughts and emotions, mental images, also coming and going or flowing on. So just notice, if you can, any mental activity coming and going. And again, we don't have to control it, we don't need to judge it, we're just aware that the mind is also sensitive, capable of knowing mental activity. And this is the totality of present moment experiencing the five physical senses and mental activity. And this activity through the six sense gates, as we say, is simply being known, being felt here and now. Can this be okay that the activity of the body and the mind is like this now? Can it be okay to rest in the ease of the body and the mind? And being interested in whatever arises to disturb the sense of release or the sense of relaxation and ease. What disturbs the ease of the body and the mind? And when nothing is disturbing the ease of the body and the mind, then notice the ease. Trust it. Appreciate the goodness of the ease of the body and the mind. And when something disturbs it, instead of being frustrated, just be interested. Now this is being known. So in this way, distractions aren't turned into a personal problem. It's like a teacher. Oh, this is being known. Worry, worrying mind is being known. Or planning mind Is being known or painful sensation and the not liking of the pain is just this experience of the body and the mind being known. Can this be okay to see and feel this as something being known? Is it okay to allow this experience to be? And remember, you can use your training anchor. Breathing in, feeling, sensing the whole body sitting. As you feel the breath going out, opening and allowing the body, bodily sensations to be the way they are. Breathing in, sensitive to the breath and the whole body. Breathing out, sensitive to the breath and the whole body. So we're going to continue in silence now for a while. And just be willing to begin again and again to find your way and to be interested in whatever appears to be a disturbance, whatever appears to be a problem in your meditation practice. Let that be a teacher. Oh, this is happening. It's something being known or being felt. Well, is it possible that this is okay to know and feel this, to allow this? Will it go away on its own, this disturbance? Keep it really simple and find a way to begin again and again and again. Have a friendly and humorous relationship to the patterns of the mind, to get caught up in one drama after another. But always the mind eventually recognizes, oh yeah, it's just all this being known, being felt. This activity of the body and the mind here and now. And you're right back in your practice. Sometimes it will be very helpful to use something very specific, like feeling the breath touching the nostrils as you're breathing in, and then feeling that simple touching of the air as the breath is going out through the nostrils. It's just an example to use a meditation object as a way to help gather collect the energy of the mind in the present moment. Just to know this simple touching as the breath comes in, the simple touching as the breath goes out. Other times to have a wider, broader, more inclusive awareness of the whole body, Experience of hearing, knowing that there's mental activity, thinking, emotion, moving, but not feeling pushed around by the other objects of experience, just knowing that this is all different experiences being known, being felt. And that the mind doesn't need to be for or against any of these experiences coming and going. Instead, the mind can be equanimous, balanced, non-reactive. And what really allows, supports that non-reactivity is that simple and clear recognition that it's just this experience being felt, being known. So we're not imagining that it's more than what the direct experience is, nor less. It's just this experience of sensation or this experience of thought being known, being felt. feels like this. Can this be okay? that the moment's like this now. Yeah, it's okay to relax. It's okay to simply know the way that it is. In a very sincere way, remember to be interested in what is appearing now to be a disturbance or a problem. And see if it can instead just be something being felt, something being known. Oh, this is not liking being known. The mind is not liking something. Well, what does that feel like? Oh, it feels like this. Or can this be okay to feel this, to allow this to be the way that it is in this moment? Because everything comes and goes. We don't have to make a distraction go away because it's the very nature of experience to show up and then to pass away. So it's possible to learn how to be relaxed and patient with all the different phenomena, all the different experiences that come and go, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So we're going to sit for another five minutes in silence. best we can, allowing the body to find some ease for another minute or so, and allowing the mind also to find whatever ease it can find, and being curious about whatever seems to be disturbing or in the way of that ease. What's the problem, if there is any? Can the problem be experienced, be seen as just something being known, being felt? Take a little time, adjust your body. Well, the room seemed pretty quiet. That was a good sign. (laughs) Either you were all asleep or relatively settled. I've been mentioning these last weeks. You know, we learn a lot from having folks check in. So we'll take, I have more I want to share before we end at nine, but... Let's take at least 15 minutes and maybe more, if there are comments and questions. But not just your sit tonight, but just over the last couple of weeks now, sitting, and it it could be anything, but in particular, let's be interested in what is it that's arising when we're sitting, or maybe some of you, hopefully some of you are doing the walking meditation, the instructions are there with the other handouts. And I mentioned it, I think, briefly the first night. Maybe I'll spend a little bit tonight reviewing the walking instructions. But what is it that shows up that seems to get in the way of continuing the practice? And uh, one of my main teachers, Joseph Goldstein, used to say things like, uh, oh, I can't practice until this goes away. Don't believe that thought. (laughs) Don't believe that there's anything we can't practice with. Because mindfulness is simply recognizing, oh, it's like this now. So even if I'm completely freaking out in some moment, there could be a moment of mindfulness that sees the mind having a panic attack or whatever it might be. Oh, feels like this, looks like this. This is the activity of the body and the mind right now. So when we're having a panic attack, can that be okay? It's actually an incredible intervention when you're having a panic attack to have that calm, non-reactive, non-judgmental presence. So yeah, this happens sometimes. So who'd like to start us off? It's nice to say your name. Thank you, my name is Joe, and I have a question speaking of Joseph Goldstein. Um, I was listening to a podcast of his recently and he talked about the concept of not wanting in the meditation and I was kind of confused about what that was. And I thought maybe I would Mm -hmm. ask. Do you you remember any more of the context of the not wanting?
2: Um, when, When you're doing your set, if you
1: get lost in a thought... Um, or you're concerned about getting lost in a thought, kind of in that context, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, in the beginning of our practice, we are, there's a little bit initially of goal orientation, like what we would normally do whenever we're initiating a project or trying to create a new habit. But we want to hold that lightly, because a lot of what we're doing like in practice is we just want to be clear. And one of the things we discover about the intention to be clear, it's like if I have an agenda, if I have an expectation, it's a distorting element in the present moment. So real clarity, really meeting the moment, being intimate with the conditions of my life, requires this not wanting or not having an agenda or expectations. So there's, there's something, especially in the initial phase of practice that we have to learn, and you could call it this receptive, especially emphasizing the receptive as- aspect of mindfulness, just letting life present, letting the moment present itself. So when you sit... You know, because a lot of us come to a class like this because we want to fix a problem. I've been really stressed lately, or this is going on. I'm having some medical problems, and I know that relaxing helps. And so we've got an agenda. And then you know, you you get going, and the person is describing what it means to be present, and it sounds like I got to let go of my agenda, and it's true. And it's really a place of vulnerability. You know, when we're sitting right in the middle of the moment, alert and relaxed, doing our best to rest in the natural ease of the body and mind, however feeble that might be after our stressful day, let alone our stressful life, we do the best we can and we notice there's a lot in the way of the natural ease of the body and the mind, right? and so it just feels so compelling to want it all to go away or to want a different experience so it's okay initially like we did at the beginning we you know we listened to the body we made some adjustments we did some deep breathing we might even use a more of a constant what you might hear as a concentration technique the pali word might be samatha samatha or uh, samadhi orientation, where we're really trying to tranquilize the mind. So there, there is an agenda. But the agenda is to get to a place where the mind is balanced so we can practice not having an agenda. So I know that sounds a little chicken and egg kind of thing, like, oh yeah, interested in not wanting, but you need to want to get to that place where you can be in the place of not wanting. But it isn't like... if. I'm in a war zone or if I'm, you know, a lot of difficult things are happening in my life, it's not easy for me to sit up in the middle of my moment, my life, and not have a lot of desire to get somewhere in my practice. So a lot of what we do to get here, you know, the people who show up in a class like this, you may feel like you're overwhelmed in life, and maybe some of you really are, But it's a privileged group that can show up for a lot of the six Tuesday nights. I mean, or just to even be interested, even that it makes even a little sense that you'd want to train your mind to be present. That's a pretty narrow group of folks that, because so many people are just overwhelmed by basic survival, just getting along Holding their relationships together and so so it's okay if there's some wanting. Just do the practice. <sighs> Initially, like to do the practice, we have to feel safe enough. So whatever you have to do to feel safe, put a blanket around, put your teddy bear there, put your cat there even. I don't recommend the cat. Unless it's an older cat and sits still. <laughs> Otherwise, get it comfortable in the other room, but know it's there, right? So we we do whatever helps that sense of safety and comfort so that we can actually do that initial part. Okay, oh yeah, there is some basic ease here in the body. Oh, look at this. The mind is capable of having some sense of ease, the heart and mind. Oh, look at here. There's something wanting to disturb. There's something is disturbing. What is that? Oh, it's a worry. Oh, it's the planning mind. Oh, it's the wanting this nice feeling to last. Oh, that's the disturbance. Okay, can I just observe, be with that disturbance as something being felt and known here? I'm not for it. I'm not against it. I'm not trying to make the disturbance go away. I'm observing it. Wondering if it will go away on its own or whether, whether it will last forever. To out what in a direct way, right? But not in terms of, you don't have to label it because you can always, if you need, like if you're finding that mental noting where in your mind, not out loud, you're naming what it is that's disturbing or catching the attention, it's a technique that, some people find very useful to give it a, a label. Oh, planning mind. Planning mind is being known. Just planning mind. But if you don't have a label that easily frames what it is you're experiencing directly, then you can say this is being known. This experience is being felt. So don't worry. Don't get tight about naming it. And whether you'd use a, a kind of generic label like this is being known or a specific label, oh yeah, aching is being felt, if that's the throbbing in your knee. Throbbing is being felt. You don't have to name it, but you do need to notice it, right? So the the noting, giving it a mental label, is actually in the service of being intimate with the experience. And so if mentally noting it, naming it, is helpful, use it. If you don't need to, just be there with it, notice it, be aware of it. Because that's really what the practice is about, not mentally noting. right? And this is, you know, our tendency is to be superficial. And you'll catch yourself, if you're using a lot of the mental noting, you'll just be noting things that aren't even happening. Because you just want to be a good meditator, and you know it has something to do with noting... So the mind just starts noting the in-breath or the out-breath, the in-breath, but then you'll check and you realize it's not even lining up with the actual in-breath when I say in or the out-breath when the mind is noting, breathing out, right? Because it's just easy to operate in a superficial way. Yeah, Joe, did you have any other follow-up to that? No, that's pretty helpful. Great, yeah. You want to pass it over here?
0: Hi, I'm Amanda. I have one thing I wanted to share, and then I have a question. Um, so the thing I wanted to share is, and I don't know if I said it in this group or if it was during um, the Sunday evening weekly practice group, but when I first started my mindfulness practice just a little while ago, I, I when I would start, I always felt a gradual and in, intensifying pain in all of my body. Um, and I just wanted to share that that pain has almost entirely gone away with persistent practice like i i have actually very often noticed throughout the day that i'm tense and i am like really intentionally relaxing my body um and so i wanted to share that um and then i have an unrelated questions so if yeah. you have anything to say let me about just that.
1: mention one thing about that there are many layers of holding so when we start a practice you know you'll notice like you might, some of you, some folks, when they start, you know, feel some tranquility pretty quick, but then as they trust the present moment, then cumulative stress or holding often expressed as bodily sensations will come to the surface, maybe somewhat similar to what you're describing, Amanda. And then it might be such that that layer of holding is... Uh, able to unwind. That pattern is able to unwind, that tendency to grip the body. But there may be more and more subtle and chronic patterns of holding that will come, in a sense, online that are more subtle. So we don't want to... Because otherwise, if when that stuff comes online, you might think, I'm going backwards. I was feeling so good, and now the mind and body seem so tight. I must be doing something wrong. But it might actually be that you're doing something right and the body is starting to shed. And we should never um, imagine we know how many layers there are. And here's the last point and the most important. Awakening and freedom isn't dependent on the unraveling of all those patterns of stress. The releasing of bodily stress, even in the most subtle level, Is a side effect of good practice. It's a really nice side effect of good practice. But freedom is really being okay having a lot of knots, right? Because some of the knots have been practiced so long, they may never unwind. It's like, you know, chronic illness. If we've been smoking cigarettes for 50 years, right, we might get lung cancer. We might become an amazing meditator, really powerful, devout, wise, fearless meditator. But that doesn't mean the course of the illness that's arising through because of so many years of that habit is going to somehow disappear because there's deep awakening, deep wisdom and compassion in the mind. But it will mean that how the mind handles The cancer and the dying process will be very graceful and easeful, right? That will change. So not all the effects of having lived as a neurotic human being, which we've all been doing to some degree, right, is going to disappear. But how we relate to those knots and those tendencies, that can get really transformed. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, Amanda. Now, no, I'm, gonna ask?
0: I'm glad you were able to speak to that. So um, the observation from my practice that I wanted to share that feels a little neurotic. So I'm curious as to, as to what you think about this. We talk about sort of um, these different meditation objects like the breath or the um, feeling in the body or sound. Um, and I just find myself through my entire sit just bouncing from one thing to another even though I'm present in the moment I'm like very quickly going from oh I feel my breath oh now I'm noticing my hands oh and I heard a sound oh now I'm back to my breath and it feels neurotic and so I just wanted to yeah,
1: yeah get your no. feedback on that no it's really good that you this is what I mean it we learned so much because it might appear that that's a problem but is it actually a problem? Like some teachers, one of my teachers, Saida Utejaniya, a Burmese Buddhist monk, he's quite well known. He does come to the States every once in a while, um, but not so much. He's had cancer recently himself. But anyway, uh, you know, he'd get excited by somebody reporting that from the set because he'd say something like, oh, in your practice, you're seeing more and more. And initially, it gets a little wild because often we mistakenly think that practice is about just about tranquilizing the mind. Now there is a real value in being able to, in a sense, seclude the mind. So like when the mind's exposed to a lot of thinking, a lot of mental activity, a lot of hearing disturbing sounds, a lot of weird or unpleasant uh, physical sensations, a lot of, Messy sites, like you're seeing your bills and you're seeing this mess over here and the cat scratching the furniture over there. It's like it would be hard just to be open and aware and allowing things to come and go, right? Because the mind would want to grip. But actually, so we generally, we seclude. We get away from the cat. We get away from the clutter. right? We make close our eyes so we don't even have to deal much with the visual experience. So we're, we're simplifying our... Experience in order to get a sense of how to be at ease as a sensitive being. So, in the beginning, we really emphasize that tranquility, and often to do that, we need to seclude. We need a more simple environment. We may say, Mind, you only get to pay attention to one thing. I want you to feel the breath at the tip of your nose. That's it. Other phenomena happen, you fine, but it's in the background, it's along the periphery. Don't pay attention to it. You're not repressing it, the thinking, the hearing, the seeing, but you're just feeling the breath, or maybe some people feel it as a rising and falling in the abdomen, right? Or you're just feeling the body sitting. And so we're really keeping it simple. But once we get enough tranquility, we're really moving more to what you described, Amanda, where you're, we're sitting, and some people even practice, like I would often recommend, with the eyes open. You know, but you're not looking around. You're just sitting there. And you're not using a meditation anchor. You're not trying to sort of collect the attention around one object of experience. Any object will do. This and that. And it feels just like you described. Like, oh, this can't be right. It's too much happening. Right? It's too wild. But really, like, next time that happens, just like, uh, why is this a problem? How do I... What is it about what's happening that suggests that it's a problem? Because if you feel anxious that's too much is happening, then let the anxiety just be the next thing that the mind is knowing. Oh, yeah, there's anxiety, too, being known. And then there's judgment about being anxious. That's being known. <laughs> or doubt, like, am I doing it right? Or oh, that's being known. That's being known. Doubt's just this mental activity. And it feels like this in the body. It has a physical expression of the body, too. There's this little tightness corresponding with the doubt. And that's just that, being known. What else is being known? And you might get like... Because we have these six sense gates. The mind is sensitive to thoughts or any kind of mental activity. And it's also... The mind is also sensitive, of course, to the five physical senses. And the mind is not sensitive to anything else. So the totality of our experience right now and anything from the past or future, has never been more than the sensitivity to these six sense gates. Now the mind, the mental activity, that's a very you know, nuanced field of sensitivity, right? But that's all life is, is sensitivity to these six things being known, six things being known. And we can really let it be wild and then that's a more resonant kind of equanimity when, when there's a lot of phenomena coming and going. Like try it in daily life when someone's triggering you and you got lots to do and you're multitasking, you know, and just be aware of everything happening and awareness. Because the, the thing we have to realize is I don't have to do it the awareness. See, initially, we think, no, I'm bringing my awareness to the breath. I'm bringing my awareness to this distraction. I'm bringing my... But is that really true? Did you bring your awareness to the sound of the clap? Oh, yeah, Mark's going to clap. No. It just was there. The awareness was there, right? So we're cultivating this habit of reflective awareness that is aware of the sixth sense gates. It becomes, with practice, with training, it becomes the habit of the mind to be aware of the wildness. I use that word wildness because, I mean, really, bodily sensations are always happening. Sounds, even when the room is really quiet, the sound of silence is happening. Just like when your eyes are closed, there's still visual experience happening. Did you notice that? Right? There's never a time when these experiences aren't happening. Now it's okay when that feels too much to seclude the awareness, to let the mind pick up one object, like breath at the tip of the nose, or just hearing, or just feeling the body, or like a prayer, or a mantra, right? Or a visualization. And then it's sort of like you're retreating to just one object, and you let everything else fall into the background. That's what we like about being out in nature and there's the sound of the bird, or we observe a cricket, you know, walking on the grass or something, and we get really fascinated, and we lose the rest of the world for a while. Life gets really simple. Just that observation, that hearing, that seeing, that touch. Right? So it's really good to use that seclusion, that one pointedness as a kind of mental healing, when we get a little exhausted, a little um, burnt out or afraid from being like undefended, wide open, letting phenomena come and go, without feeling the need to defend ourselves from the different sounds and sights and thoughts and emotions and touches that are coming and going. And that's kind of like gives you just intellectually a little flavor of what the Buddha means by awakening. Imagine the mind, and remember you can use the word heart, imagine the mind or heart, wide awake, intimate, right in the middle, open, but no friction with the seeing that's being seen or the hearing that's being heard or the touches that are being felt, or the mental activity that's being known, smells and tastes, being smelt and tasted, right? So, sensitivity, activity, it doesn't even require the body to be still. You could be talking, you could be jumping, doing backflips. But the mind, awake, and not creating any friction. That's a little sense of the freedom that we're practicing toward. To be living your life, you're sort of giving your personality freedom. And the only requirement is to be reflectively aware. And that's the feedback mechanism. So instead of trying to be skillful, right, we're interested in being reflectively aware. So if the personality starts to act out unskillfully because of its past conditioning, the reflective awareness, mindful awareness, is going to be vividly, intimately, sensitively aware of what that's like to be unskillful. And that will feed back into the mind stream. So it's naturally corrective. You don't even, I don't even need to fix myself anymore because there never was somebody fixing ourselves. It's a natural system, it's always been a natural system. That part of the natural system is this neurotic tightness, thinking I have to do everything, including mindfulness. So initially there is a little of that desire that you were talking about, Joe. But what we're really doing ultimately is we're practicing being at ease with whatever's happening in the body and the mind. And realizing moments of friction and realizing moments of non-friction. Friction is the same as neurotic activity, right? Where there's some little identification or attachment or grasping or struggling going on. And then other moments where there's less of that, like we have these sort of cliches now, like I was in the flow. You know, I wasn't, it's just stuff happening. Oh, so great. So we kind of have flavors of like some interaction that just felt so easeful, so natural, like I wasn't even having to do it. And I couldn't believe how well I handled it. Precisely because you weren't trying to be skillful, right? But you were there, the mind was awake, so the mind was like how it was responding was really coming out of the totality of what was there in the moment, because it was awake. But they Congealing around me being somebody who's trying to be skillful gets in the way of being sensitive, and that's the crux of it. We have to choose between doing our life or being skillful. Because being skillful means getting out of the way, putting all like the refuge is awareness, not the I- the refuge is not the idea of me being skillful, me being wise, me being compassionate. The refuge is having observed what really helps. What really helps is being intimate. You want to be a good human being? Practice being intimate. But a lot of us think to be a good human being I should try to be a good human being. But a lot of terrible stuff happens because people are trying to do the right thing. Because. Me trying to do the right thing comes out of my own cultural conditioning, you know, which is (laughs) limited, as it is for probably all of us. Thanks, Amanda. Who'd like to go next? Comments from your practice, questions? Yeah, wait for the mic though, so we can hear you. And we're also recording. Yeah, I use it synonymously with being open, being aware, being mindfully aware, being sensitive to the way it is, right? So, you know, language is sort of funny, so one of those words will kind of be more useful for you than others, depending on how your mind is conditioned to understand those words. But it's really the heart isn't being defended, So instead of, like initially when we're being mindful, it can have the sense of I'm up here in the watchtower looking down on the body or looking at the breath or looking down at the present moment over here. But real mindfulness, as we kind of get a better sense, is like being right in the middle, undefended, exposed, intimate. So I like those words, vulnerable, exposed, intimate, because it really helps with that sense of, I'm not distancing myself. Because where, just check right now in your experience, where's the present moment? Is it out there? And where's the knowing? Where's the awareness? See, the awareness, does your awareness have a location? See, the awareness, like in Zen, they've got all this weird language the awareness interpenetrates reality. It isn't located anywhere. So that's the exposure, the intimacy we want, that the object that's being known and the awareness that's knowing the object of the present moment, there's really no distance separation between those two things. But we have an idea that I'm back here, the observer, the knower, knowing experience which is somewhere not back there, it's somewhere else, out there, right? So that's called separation or duality. And that is just an idea in the mind. It's actually not reality. And so being mindful, we're coming into reality, which is knowing and whatever it is that's being known in the moment. You could kind of look at the present moment in one way that emphasizes that it's being known and you can look at the present moment another way that emphasizes what is it what it is that's being known but they're not really two things they're just sort of two facets of the same thing what in buddhism we call dharma or dhamma the way it is knowing and what's being known and that's being intimate and this is just normal ordinary Reality. It's not like we're waking up to a different reality. We're recognizing the reality that's always been here. Okay? There's just this being known. That's all it is. This is being known. And whatever that is, we're right in the middle of it. And there's no way to get distant from it. Except to deludedly think. We're distant from it, and that, and then identifying with that thought as if it's the truth when it's just a thought, right here and now. Sorry if that seems a little trippy, (laughs) and if it doesn't make any sense, don't try to grip to it or hold to it.
2: My name's Idel. This evening earlier, you said about experiences coming and going, so I want to address something. Um, This. Last month of September, I know we're in October. Um, I had relentless experiences, very severe uh, distractions. Um, uh, someone dying in the family. Uh, someone, having, um, a, a hemorrhatic stroke, someone having a hemorrhagic um, stroke. Someone having a such a severe car accident that the car was crashed and they couldn't fix it and they had to um, sell their car and just lose it to the insurance so one after another after another relentless experiences that did not stop just day after day Um, it's not like I woke up and expected these things these things just were relentless so my question to you and I I practice every day and, and I enjoy practicing and these things that are happening do not stop me But my question is, when you have severe distractions and experiences that are severe distractions and are not coming and going, but just are there all the time, how do you, um, in this, this beautiful world of meditation, handle that? Because you can't just say, it's a cat or it's a noise or it's a knee that hurts. Someone died. Someone suffered a stroke. I think it's a different um, playing field. It's a different level of, of life that we're looking at when these kind of experiences are happening. Um, so if you could address that, please. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, all the time, usually in more in one-on-one situations, I'm meeting people that are either in the dying process or have gotten a serious diagnosis or long time marriage is breaking up and they they're asking that same kind of question yeah right but the, but the point is what helps isn't it what helps and so when something intense arises in our life just be really pragmatic so if the mind attempts to distract itself, see if that helps. If the, the mind uh, wants it to go away you know, in some kind of deluded way, wants to sort of tell itself a lie, notice how that is. Be aware of that. If the mind opens and actually gets curious, is it safe to feel how yucky this feels? and get interested in what that does. So instead of pretending or telling yourself you have to be skillful, just in that very practical way, see what helps and what doesn't help. And in that way, the teachings of the Buddha, it's really basic human common sense. Notice what helps. Notice what's skillful and what's unskillful. So that requires like, to be aware, because it's only when the mind is willing to be aware that we see the different habits that are expressing themselves, whether they're skillful, useful habits or not, whatever the mind does. And in that way, we strengthen the wholesome, helpful habits, and we wear out or weaken the unwholesome ones, because in you know, in the clear clarity of awareness, we see, well, that's not helping. Like if we saw, if we burnt ourselves on the stove and then we did something to the burn that wasn't helping, we'd stop doing it. We wouldn't need to think about it. We'd just, oh, that's not helping. That doesn't seem to be helping. Or if we put some aloe or ran some cold water on it and it seemed to be helping, we'd keep doing it until we got feedback that it wasn't helping. Now, what's missing? So why do we keep doing the same thing, getting the same results? because we don't have that reflective awareness that really allows for the feedback. We have to have that balanced, non-reactive, non-judgmental presence that really is connecting the dots to see like what's helping and not helping. So this is a neat thing. Don't try to stop yourself from reacting to all these difficult things that have been happening. Instead, let yourself Let the reaction happen as it's going to happen. But notice, even with the reactivity, there's this clear, non-judging, stable presence. It's an insight. So a lot of times we think, oh no, I've got to be that wise presence in the background. But you don't really have to do it because it's a natural and impersonal capacity to the mind to be wise and present in that reflective way. So notice that it's there, even after one thing after another is happening, there's this quiet, wise presence that is simply going, now it's like this, now it's like this, and now you're reacting to it like this, and it's not helping, now you're showing up like this, and it seems to be helping, and now it's like this. And not only are you noticing how you're relating and whether that's skillful or not, you're also, to some degree, noticing how everybody else is showing up to their life and whether it seems to be helpful or not. So we're learning directly in our experience, but we're also learning indirectly as we observe everybody else showing up to whatever's going on in their life and whether it seems to be increasing stress or not for them and for others. Yeah, thanks for sharing. It's great to hear about all that difficulty. that's
2: how you
1: find your strength it is yeah, yeah. And,
3: and thank God meditation yeah it is so Mark because uh, I I started meditating through Zen I'm used to kind of starting meditation with um, different aspects of the Bodhisattva vow of helping other beings or being free of hindrances um, for the sake of being a helpful being in the world and so Most of the talk tonight has been focused on the individual view of freeing your mind, whereas in Asian countries, they're kind of steeped in all this generosity and, you know, the precepts and all that. And so I'm just wondering, you know, as we wake up, for me, I'm I'm doing it because I have an orientation to be, to help other beings and to be of use in the world. So, so could you, is it useful to talk about the Living in vow, which is part of Zen, and how does that interact with an intro to mindfulness?
1: Yeah. Well, the thing is, those kinds of vows without, without a lot of wisdom, a lot of depth, can be totally misused. And there's like, all we have to do is study the history of religions, including Buddhism, to see how much destruction that vow. You know, because it can seem like, yeah, I vow to save all beings, and you're deluded, and you know, <laughs> you got to find the way, and I know the way, so let me show you the way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, oh, you're one of those tough ones, so I'm going to have to be a little rough with you, so that you kind of beat that bad stuff out of you. And I mean, it's just endemic how this. So early Buddhism. What was emphasized is getting wise, and in noticing that, what comes out of that wisdom is a natural compassion, a, a natural absence of self-centeredness. Because it's very easy to think we're we're compassionate when we're just trying—you know—we're trying to be special, we're trying to be seen, or whatever, you know, or, or worse. Now, next week, we're going to, it's kind of a nice uh, segue because I wanted to mention as a kind of homework, uh, besides getting interested in what gets in the way, what we were sort of talking about this week, kind of in preparation for next week, we're really looking at what Sean is talking about the relevance of attitude. And, you know, one way to think about the whole spectrum of our attitudes or moods or even points of view at this end we could, at this end of a spectrum, we could say these are very self-centered, very strong orientation around a me who's afraid, or a me who needs something, a me who wants to be kind, but from a very self-centered point of view. Like, I want to be kind. I don't want to be unkind. So self-centeredness all the way here. You could call this compassion or kindness, But it might be more technically useful to call this absence of self-centered drama. So that compassion, instead of compassion being a thing, somebody's being compassionate, compassion is sort of what's left when self-centered drama's been teased out. Like how would you show up at home or in community if if your mind wasn't involved in some self-centered drama? How would you show up? What would be left? Like as a social being in community, doing whatever you do in community, going to your church or hanging out at the park or playing with your kids. But in that moment or in those moments, for whatever reasons, no self-centered drama, wouldn't there naturally be compassion and kindness? What what other what mode would our mind have to interact If there was no self-centered greed, no self-centered fear or anger, irritation in the mind, because that had been dropped at least temporarily. So in early Buddhism, the way the Buddha taught, kindness was sort of the natural activity of a mind free from greed, anger, and delusion. Now next week, we're going to note, like one of the things you can notice this week is like, and you can even drop in the question, what's the attitude? At this end of the scale, a lot of self-centeredness, a lot of a, a strong sense of self, or a relative absence of self-centeredness, self-centered orientation. Just, you're not judging, you're just noticing. Because wanting to get over here is a self-centered orientation. God, I can't wait till I'm free of self-centeredness, right? That's a strong self-centered orientation. So if you want to get over here, don't try to get over here. Just notice where the mind is. Is it, is, it, is it in this moment infected with a self-centered orientation? Or does it seem to be resting in a more, uh, a more sort of space of the absence of a self-centered orientation? Oh. And just keep noticing wherever you are along that that range from strongly, deeply self centered to relatively free. And the more you just get interested, and you again you can do this internally in terms of what's going on in your own heart and mind, but you can it will be imperfect and don't judge the other people in your lives. But just get an intuitive, energetic sense. This person right now in this moment is coming, apparently, from a really strong, self-centered, they're stuck, they're fixed. Or this person seems to be relatively unfixed around a sense of self. Kind of like being around that person. Kind of challenging being around this other person, right? So we learn both um, out externally and internally with these different Dharma frames, these sort of frames that help us learn about the mind, recognize the mind. And then related to that, and this goes back to Sean's comment, is when you're noticing in yourself or in others the absence of self-centeredness, then just get curious, Like, could this be what I'm observing in this other person or what, the, what I'm observing in myself? Would it be appropriate to consider this a kind of healthy love or compassion or kindness? This person, me or another, who in this moment, these moments, doesn't seem to have a lot of self-centeredness going on. So that we're starting to equate the absence of self-centeredness with a more natural, appropriate kind of love, all the different expressions of love, compassion, friendliness, appreciative joy, and the self-centeredness as the inability to love because of the self-centered fixation. That separateness that comes from self-centeredness interrupts any capacity for the heart to be generous in that loving, kind, compassionate way. So just study that, and then we'll dig into that next week, and we'll do the loving-kindness practice. And if you don't want to wait, you might have noticed in the newsletter, the first Friday of the month and the third Friday of the month there's a drop-in group where we do self-compassion practice and loving-kindness practice. So I'll be leading it um, this month, 7 to 8.30 on Friday. Again, it's a drop-in program. And we'll do the guided meditation that we're going to do a little of next Tuesday, too. But if you want, double dose. And you might want to track down the handout for week five, because it describes it. It would be nice to read it before class next week. And... Let's also remember to take a little time next week to talk about walking meditation. So if you haven't yet, reread the instructions or read the instructions for walking meditation. I think they're for week three or two. And then try it in a hallway or outside this week. It doesn't have to be long, just seven to 15 minutes. You know, Just so you get a taste, so you can start doing it anytime you're walking from your car to your office. You can do that. So we need to end now.